Good morning, Christ Prez. Our scripture reading today is 1 Samuel chapter 22, verses 1 and 2, and chapter 24, verses 1 through 7. Hear the word of God. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adalim. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness and in Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterwards, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Far up in the north of Canada in the Yukon region, there's a guy named Bill Donaldson. And if you were to run into Bill, you would probably think he's a pretty ordinary guy. He's a woodworker. He has 492 Facebook friends. He likes watching Netflix. But what sets Bill apart from most of us is that he lives in a cave. He is a caveman. For over 20 years, he has lived in a small cave above the Yukon River across from Dawson City. And his cave is fully equipped, has two LED lights, it has a wood stove, cooking utensils, and a bed. He lives there with his two dogs, and he's known as Caveman Bill around town. Over the years, he has become a minor celebrity, a somewhat extreme example of how to live a different way of life. This strikes most of us as rather bizarre and undesirable. It raises the question, why would anyone ever want to live in a cave? Why would anyone want to live in a cave? Well, let's look at our passage again and explore it under these headings. We'll look at the cave, we'll look at the temptation of the cave, and then we'll just talk about some wisdom for cave dwellers. Okay, so first, the cave. At this point in the story, remember, David has been anointed as king. And you might think that this means his life is about to get significantly better. Glory and a crown. You know, we associate kingship with, with might and power and glory. But no, David is running for his life. He's being hunted by Saul. He's afraid. He doesn't know what to do. Nothing is going well for him. And he is living in a cave. We don't have to wonder about how he feels about this. In scripture, two Psalms are attributed to David in the cave. Here's some of what he says in these Psalms. It's Psalm 57 and Psalm 142. From Psalm 57, my soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts, the children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. From Psalm 142, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. 
I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. There is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. So you can hear that this is a man who feels attacked and abandoned and deeply troubled. God seems totally absent. David feels like God doesn't care. And it's not hard to see why. I mean, God had promised that David would be king, but here he is, a fugitive, on the run, hiding in darkness. This isn't how we picture the goodness of God's kingdom in all of its fullness. And I wonder, have you ever been in a cave? A dark place, a place of trouble and suffering, a place of hopelessness, a place where you doubt the presence of God, a place where you doubt his goodness, where his help feels entirely non-existent, where what you most cherished has been taken away, where what you most want is not provided, where your deepest prayers go unanswered. Some of you are living in caves this morning. And I wonder, what's your theology of the cave? I mean, how do you grapple with it? Can you face it in such a way that you're not undone? You know, the truth is we're not very good with caves. When I see a big dark hole in the ground, my first thought isn't to dive in and check it out. I usually try to keep my distance. You know, caves can be scary. They're dark, they're dank. There's no telling what might be hiding in a cave, maybe a lion or a tiger or a bear, maybe a snake. We usually do everything we can to avoid caves. We prefer comfort. We'd rather remain in the light. In fact, we often treat caves as precisely the problem that our faith is supposed to fix. If we have faith, real faith that is, faith that is strong enough and true enough, well then our lives ought to be cave free. And so when someone in our midst shares that God feels absent, we assume that something has gone horribly wrong. When someone tells us they're in the cave, we immediately start wondering about their deficiency. How did they let that happen? What did, what did they do wrong? How did they mess up? Why would they go into a cave? Why would they be in the darkness? We think something must be wrong for them to feel this way. And we start to view the whole cave situation as a problem to be fixed. And of course, we have no shortage of good advice about getting out of caves. It sounds like this. Have you tried reading your Bible more? Have you tried praying more? Have you tried adjusting your daily habits, deepening your spiritual disciplines? These are the ropes we dangle down into those dark caverns. Just grab one of these and pull yourself out. The assumption is that something is wrong with the person in the cave. And so we set out to fix them. But what I want you to see and hear this morning, family, is that caves are a normal part of the life of faith. The cave experience is not a bug, it's a feature. It's not an elective, it's part of the required curriculum. Sooner or later, we all go into the cave. C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, is a series of, of letters between Wormwood, who is a junior demon, and his uncle Screwtape, who is farther along in the ways of destroying souls. And together, they're conspiring to ruin a human's life. And in one letter, Wormwood, he's excited because his patient, that's what they call the human that they're trying to destroy, 
is going through a time of profound discouragement, a trough, a valley. The patient has gone into a cave. And Wormwood is excited about this. But Screwtape, the older, uh, more advanced demon, cautions him and says this. The dryness and dullness through which your patient is now going are not, as you fondly suppose, your workmanship. To decide what the best use of it is, you must ask what use God wants to make of it and then do the opposite. Now, it may surprise you to learn that in his efforts to get permanent possession of a soul, God relies on the valleys, the caves, even more than on the peaks. Some of his favorites have gone through longer and deeper valleys, darker and danker caves than anyone else. It is during such valley periods, much more than during the peak periods, that it is growing them into the sort of creature, creatures he wants them to be. He wants them to learn how to walk and must therefore take away his hand. And if only the will to walk is really there, he is pleased even with their stumbles. Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, still intending to do our enemy's will, that is God's will, looks around upon a universe from which every trace of God seems to have vanished, asks why he has been forsaken, and still obeys. He goes on, the best way to exploit the valley is through the patient's own thoughts about it. As always, the first step is to keep knowledge out of his mind. Do not, let, do not let him suspect the law of undulation. Let him assume that the first spiritual highs of his conversion might have been expected to last and ought to have lasted forever, and that his present dryness, his present cave dwelling, is an equally permanent condition. Having once got this misconception fixed in his head, you may then proceed in various ways. That's, that's the end of the quote, which I adapted a little bit for the, for the purpose of this sermon. But do you see that Lewis is onto something? The caves can feel absolutely devastating when we're in them. But for the sake of our spiritual health and, and sanity, we need to acknowledge that caves are a normal part of the life of faith. I mean, we could all go out and get bumper stickers. Caves happen. But you see, it's not just that they happen. It's that they're transformative. You know, caves are always transformative. Um, Odysseus, he went into the cave to battle the Cyclops, and he came out victorious. Yoda sent Luke Skywalker down into a cave to face his own demons. Bilbo Baggins encountered Gollum in the cave and came out with the ring. Gandalf the Grey battled the Balrog down in the deeps and emerged as the White Wizard. It's not just that caves happen. It could be that you'll never be the person God created you to be without the cave. God uses caves to form us and deepen us. And he's doing this, hear this, he's doing this even when we can't see how he's doing it. G.K. Chesterton writing about St. Francis's own transformative experience in a cave, said this, that man who went into the cave was not the man who came out again. In that sense, he was almost as different as if he were dead, as if he were a blessed spirit. And the effects of this on his attitude towards the actual world were really extravagant as any parallel can make them. He looked at the world as differently from other men, as if he had come out of that dark hole walking on his hands. Close quote. In other words, the cave enabled Francis 
to see right side, right, right side up. It enabled him to see something of the kingdom of God. See, caves change us. God uses caves to form us into the people he wants us to be. God is at work in caves. But he's not the only one who would work at, in caves. Let's look at the temptation now in the cave. You know, caves are times of testing and trial. Geographically, the place where you find caves in that region of the world is in the wilderness. Caves uh, in the ancient Near East are out in the desert. Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness being tested and tried, learning ever so slowly and painfully to, to depend on God. And in our story, we learn that David is not just in the wilderness, but that he and his men are hiding down in the innermost parts of a cave in the wilderness. They are way down deep in this thing. And then in an unexpected humorous twist, Saul, who was hunting David, he enters into the exact same cave to relieve himself. He doesn't realize that David is hiding in the back of the cave. And so David has quite literally caught his pursuer with his pants down. David's men say, this is your chance. You've got a sword. He's, how shall we say, uh, extremely vulnerable. This is your chance to bring uh, all this wandering around in the wilderness to an end. This is your chance to get out of the cave once and for all. You can pick up the remote and you can fast forward to glory. They say, you shall do to him as it seems good to you. And do you see the temptation here? They're saying, now's your chance to take your life into your own hands and do whatever seems best. Do you hear the echo of that ancient snake? God isn't for you. God doesn't care. Eat the fruit. Fast forward to the kingdom. You must do what seems good to you. I wonder how you experience the temptation of the cave. How do you resist it? How do you avoid it? How do you try to fast forward through it? Are there ways you try to avoid hardship, suffering and pain because you don't want to be in the cave? You know, for some of us, it could be distraction. Rather than face what is difficult or work through what is painful, we numb ourselves with entertainment or alcohol or work just to keep ourselves distracted from facing the things that are really hard. For others, it might be avoidance. Maybe there's something going on in a relationship or in, a, in your workplace that really needs to be addressed, but you choose instead to stay quiet and never do anything rather than deal with the conflict and struggle that will be created by speaking up. Or maybe instead of facing the challenge in your marriage or family or workplace, you just hit eject and you go find something or someone else that is less trouble. For others of us, maybe it's just giving up you're in a season that is so difficult or painful that rather than persevering in hope and trusting God in the darkness, you choose to throw in the towel, call it quits. It'll be different for all of us, but what's common is that none of us likes the cave. We're always looking for creative ways to fast forward through these experiences and to get to glory as soon as possible. You remember, we saw that Saul faced the same temptation and he gave in. Back in chapter 13, we talked about his impatient disobedience. He wasn't content with his own little cave. He wasn't willing to embrace what God had for him in it. He wanted glory and he wanted it now. And so he stopped waiting for Samuel to show up. Do you remember that? And he made that sacrifice himself. 
Well, David is facing essentially the same temptation here. This is his chance to skip the suffering, to take the throne. He has an opportunity to bypass the valley and to ascend the hill. Here's his chance to grab hold of the kingdom instead of waiting patiently to receive it. See, this is his way out of the cave. But rather than kill Saul and take the kingdom, he waits. He adopts a posture of patient trust. He chooses to believe God's promise that the kingdom will come in good time, even though he can't see how. Did you know that we get 20 chapters between David being anointed as king and David entering into the glory of his kingdom? 20 long chapters of wilderness wanderings and cave dwelling. This is the life of the anointed one. Some of you are in caves this morning. Some of you have been in caves recently, and all of us sooner or later will go down into the cave. Will you be ready for it? How can you be ready? Well, let's move to our third point. Let's look at some of the ways Israel's story here gives us wisdom for cave dwellers. And I put it this way because the temptation will be to turn what I'm about to say into little ropes that we dangle down in front of the cave dwellers. The temptation is to turn these into methods of escaping the cave experience. Do these things and the cave won't be so bad. But no, that's not the point at all. These are not steps to follow that will lead us up out of the cave. Rather, these are practices that can help us do our cave dwelling faithfully. So first, Learn how to lament. In the Psalms, David models for us what it looks like to stay engaged with God in the cave. And what does it look like? It looks like lamentation. He laments. He cries out to God for mercy. He registers his complaint with God. And family, this is wisdom. Our tendency in caves, when we feel that God has closed himself off to us, is for us to return the favor and to close ourselves off to him. God has hidden himself from us, and so we hide ourselves from God. But the invitation here instead is to stay engaged, and in particular, to practice lament. David wasn't just praying, he was singing. He was singing his doubts, his complaints, his cries, his fears, and that is a beautiful act of faith. I bet it sounded beautiful too. Caves often have good acoustics. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon writes, Our God is not the God of the hills only, but of the valleys also. He is God of both sea and land. He heard Jonah when the disobedient prophet was at the bottom of the mountains, and the earth with her bars seemed to be about him forever. Wherever you are, you can pray. Wherever you lie sick, you can pray. There is no place to which you can be banished where God is not near, and there is no time of day or night when his throne is inaccessible. Close quote. Often when we're in caves, we don't feel like praying at all. We might not feel like we have the words to pray. And that's okay, because scripture gives us the words to pray. You can open up the Bible to the Psalms and let David's words become yours. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison, that I might give thanks to your name. 
So that's our first piece of wisdom for cave dwellers. Let's learn how to lament. Here's a second. Connect to community. One of the things I love about this story is that David wasn't alone in the cave. He has about 400 people with him. Um, They're vastly outnumbered, for sure. Saul had over 3,000 with him, but David is not alone. Who were these people with David? Well, in chapter 22, verse 2, we read this. They were everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul. Those are the people who gathered to David. Family, isn't this a beautiful image of the church? God brings us help in the cave in the form of a community of other people who are also needy and broken like us. And so what's the wisdom for us in this? Don't do your cave dwelling alone. Stay connected to community. Now, again, this is really hard. Often when we're in caves, we want to be alone. We don't feel like being with others. We withdraw and isolate ourselves. And that's not all bad. Being by yourself in the cave is okay for a while. It might be really important. That might be one of the ways God wants to work with you in the cave. But God gives us the gift of Christian community. If you're in the cave, please don't cut yourself off. See that you're not alone. See that there are others in distress, others who are bitter in soul, and be open to the gifts that they might have for you. And at the same time, if you're not in the cave right now, but you know someone who is, I wonder how you might sensitively reach out to them in love. Remind them that they are not alone. Don't try to fix them. Your job is not to get them out of the cave. Maybe you're called to just go into the cave and sit with them for a while and listen. So family, maybe this is wisdom for us. Stay connected to community. Let's do our cave dwelling together. And then last, see that Jesus is with you in the cave. You know, one of the things that makes cave dwelling so difficult is that it's dark and our vision is limited. God seems hidden or distant or altogether absent. And so family, we need to remember the gospel. The faith we profess tells us that the God who created the heavens and the earth does not dangle ropes down into our caves, calling us to pull ourselves up and out. He doesn't toss in a flashlight and well wishes. He is a God who enters deep down into the cave with us. We believe in Jesus Christ, Emmanuel. What did we expect God to be like? High and mighty, removed and distant? This, this God we know in Jesus Christ is not that kind of king. He is a king who comes close. He's a king who enters into our wilderness. You remember, Adam faced the temptation in the garden. Israel faced the temptation in 40 years of wandering in the desert. Jesus faces the same temptations in the wilderness. He's led there by the Spirit immediately after his baptism. And there's a snake in that cave. And the snake offers Jesus the opportunity to bypass suffering and to have the kingdom immediately. The snake hands Jesus the remote control and says, you can just fast forward to the glory and the crown. But Jesus resists. He relies on God's promises. He trusts the Father's love. He succeeds where Adam failed and where Israel failed and where you and I so often fail. 
But that's only the beginning of Jesus's cave dwelling. Later, much later, Jesus is in the garden and he's crying out that the cup might pass from him. He knows that what lies before him is the ultimate cave. And like any sane human being, he'd prefer not to go into it. He'd rather find another route, maybe one that stays in the high places and avoids the valley. But he surrenders his will to the will of God. And then you remember he was crucified. Mark tells us that the sun was blotted out. It's like for a while the whole world becomes a cave. And Jesus cries out the cry of God abandonment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a cry from one who has gone deeper down into the depths than any of us ever has or ever will. And then he dies. And in case it wasn't obvious that our king goes into caves, he literally gets buried in one. If God is with us like this family, if God is with us in this ultimate way, in the deepest, darkest cave of God forsakenness and death, if even that can't separate you from his love, then don't you know he's with you in whatever cave you're in now? You know, caves come in all shapes and sizes. Is If he's with you in the infinitely big one, don't you know he's with you in the little ones you're dwelling in today? You might think little, they don't feel little. No, they don't, do they? But size is relative. They're little compared to the cave of the cross. They're little compared to the crucifixion, death, and burial of the Son of God. And as the Apostle Paul was able to discern, they're little in comparison to the glory that awaits you on the other side of the cave. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, the sufferings of this cave, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The light momentary affliction of this cave is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. That's how it was for David. That's how it was for the true king, the one to whom David points. That's how it is for you and me. The cave always comes before the crown. In the meantime, see that even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, Jesus is with you. Jesus is with you in your cave. And everyone who is in distress and everyone who is in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him and he became their Lord. May it be so. In Jesus' name, amen.